everyone welcome to the grabs podcast where we bring the stories of real life rescues to you firsthand from those involved i'm your host today my name is grant with me i got justin hutcherson he's a lieutenant at whitfield county fire department and that's in georgia uh we're going to be talking about a grab that his crew made january 28th 2022 so welcome justin how you doing doing good grant thanks for having me can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your fire department Absolutely. Um, I work for Whitfield County Fire Department. Um, we cover 291 square miles. We currently have 12 stations. Um, and at two of the stations, we have two ladder trucks. Um, we run squads and engines. Um, each station has a minimum of at least two personnel. We're starting to grow where we're having um, three people at, at a couple of stations and um, at the, our uh, aerial stations, we do have at least four people at those two stations. Um, whenever I started back in 2015, I went through recruit class and um, vo volunteered until I got promoted full-time in um, February of 2017 and uh, made my way through the ranks. And uh, now um, I got promoted to lieutenant in 2020. And uh, that's, that's about it. I did. I did uh, go to college, um, have a fire science degree, um, and just continually striving to to gain more and more knowledge in the fire service to pass it on to the next generation and just help grow in our department. Nice. What do you What do you guys get on a single family residential house fire? Like, what's your response and and staffing that you get on that? So currently we get five engines and two ladder trucks for a first due response because um, we're trying to get um, at least a minimum of 15 people there. And then what's your delay like if, um, between like first and second due and how long until everybody gets there? So it, obviously it depends on what part of the county um, we're responding to. If, in the, if it's an outline station or if it's one that's more toward the center, but usually there can be five to seven minute delay um, between stations if there's, because um, we have a lot of railroad tracks and things like that. Um, but if, if it's a center, one of the more neutral stations, then it may only be three minute delay before another engine's on scene. And so how do you guys break down uh, the tasks that need to get done? Do you have pre-arrival assignments? Is it instant command driven or, or how's that work? So in our department, we don't have pre-arrival assignments. They do empower the first arriving officer to be an officer and make um, those assignments upon his um, upon arrival whenever we start doing our pre-incident size up and then getting our 360 and, and just going through and looking at what are the instant priorities and, and, and what steps need to happen first. Um, so in doing that, we have the power to, to make whatever assignments necessary because they would like for us to try to at least give assignments to the up to the third or fourth due. So that way it gives the captain's time to get on scene, take over command, and then um, um, run it the way that they see fit um, with the changes at that time. But usually first in is, is going to be fire attack and we're going to try to search off the hose line as soon as we get in there. 
And then second dew is going to be a primary and third dew is going to catch a, some sort of water supply. Cool. I know that happens a lot in a lot of departments, but I want to ask you, when you guys, when you say you're searching off the hose line, what's that like? Are you guys stretching to the fire, putting water on the fire and then working, working search, you know, kind of in tandem? Or are you searching on your way in or, you know, how do, so, how do you do so our, our primary goal is obviously to try to mitigate the, the hazards inside the structure, try to get that environment um, cooler, start pre-entry checks. And as we're working to the fire, cooling off the atmosphere until we get to the seat of the fire. Um, and then once we make it to that seat of the fire and are, are able to either um, put it in check or at least contain it to the room of origin, then we start branching off and searching from there without getting too far uh, away, from, away from each other. We, we like to stay in communication distance um, just in case something happens. And then we rely on that next end to do a full primary search of the entire structure. So we, we try to get right there closest to the, the seat of the fire um, where the IDLH is, is um, obviously more hazardous to any victim that's in there. And then we rely on our other units to come in and try to finish that out. That's good. You explained that well. I know a lot of departments do that. Um, so take us to January 28th, 2022, and let's talk about this call you had. Absolutely. So um, on January 28th, uh, 2022, we ended up getting a call at uh, 1.41 in the afternoon um, advising us that there was a structure fire with a victim trapped inside. Um, the, the caller of the structure fire was actually the victim that was inside. Um, and so immediately once once that call came out and it was in our first due territory the it, the worst feeling overcame me like it, it was you know these the, this this right here is the kind of call that we train for that that we do like this is this is the call that we have to be prepared for because this is when seconds matter um this is why we're here to to protect and serve the citizens and and they're expecting us to show up and get the job done and 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 save them. And so, you know, that that comes in, that plays a lot into how hard we train. Uh, it plays a lot into physical fitness and working out and making sure that we're ready for that moment at any time. But whenever we look at the mental aspect, you know, I've always tried to play these scenarios this type of call and, and scenarios in my head of um what what would happen you know um trying to stay calm make good sound decisions and think about um the priorities of, of how we're going to attack those calls and you really can't prepare there's nothing i found that really could prepare me for what i felt and just the overwhelming feeling that came across my body um however you know in that instant it doesn't matter you have to be able to block that stuff out because if we let that stuff overcome us then obviously we're we're inefficient at being able to perform our job so um i'll kind of get back to that of, of how that affected me but initially 
whenever we got that call, it was just um, myself and my engineer, Derek Kraft, at the station. And uh, we were at Station 5, which is the furthest south end of our county. And so with us being an outlying station, usually it takes a little bit longer for us to have a, a next arriving unit to get there. Um, but this day was unique because we had um, some training going on at the training centers that was two districts away. So station four and station 12 happened to be at station eight um, doing training. So we were left by ourselves in the South end temporarily. And that's just so happened to been the time whenever we get, received the um, rescue call. And uh, so I knew at that point, it's just me and my engineer. Like we're we're going to be by ourselves for at least fifteen to twenty minutes, and so it was on us to get there and and get the job done um, as quickly and and as efficiently as possible. Um. So once we got the call, obviously we're trying to gather as much information for me as the officer, trying to go ahead and start my scene size up. Um, I knew the location of, of where the, the house we were going to, it was in a trailer park on the furthest, one of the furthest points south of our district. So with us, just, just ourselves, it was going to be a longer response time. Um, and so, like I said, we got dispatched at 141 and we made it on scene at 148. So it was exactly seven minutes to the second um, response time, which is a little bit long for, because we usually try to average around five and a half minutes. But like I said, that particular um, call was one of the furthest points and there was no quick way to get there. And it happened to be in this trailer park that had several speed bumps which obviously slowed down the response and it was the last house on that um, cul-de-sac. Um, and other other considerations with that, there there is no hydrants down this trailer park. So we knew at that point for any kind of fire suppression operations, we were gonna have to relay pump to each other just from tank water. So those are all considerations that were going through my head. Um, I got to give it to my engineer. Um, he drove the engine and responded as safely, but as quickly um, as as anyone could. Like if we were at the station and you put uh, the directions to to the house we went to, the the single wide, it would have told you eight minutes. But we got there in seven, and that includes us getting in bunker gear and 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 responding. So I was very impressed with my engineer and him getting us there. Um, but then on the way to the call, obviously we're, we're gathering more information. Um, I'm trying to stay calm, communicate to my engineer, letting them know that, hey, we know there's someone trapped inside. Um, we know he's still alive. So I would just let him know that I don't want him to do anything but getting out of this engine and getting his pack on. I don't want him to throw wheel chocks don't put it in pump gear we're not pulling lines we're going in grabbing this guy and getting out as, as quickly as possible because seconds matter um, I knew we weren't going to have a lot of time and with it being a single wide trailer um, those things are like tin cans they, they go vent limited very quickly 
um, and they, they get very hot. So so we we're gonna have to to make every second count. Um, which with it in 2022, it was an extraordinary year just in general because at the very start of this year, between January to to March, we ran seemed like a structure fire every other week. Um, I know for me personally, at Station 5, I had eight first two structure fires just on my shift. Um, so we were very busy this year and just in the whole entire county with the amount of structure fires, it was the busiest year for our county with um, out of the past 10 years. So um, that trailer park we actually um, went to, I had already um, fought fire in two other mobile homes in that trailer park prior to um, this rescue call coming out. So we knew exactly where we were going. We knew the obstacles that we were going to um, come into. And uh, dispatch did a fantastic job relaying every bit of information that they possibly could to us. Um, they let us know that he was um, trapped in the floor in the living room and that the fire was in the kitchen. And <clears throat> knowing, I mean, most um, single-wide mobile homes are all laid out basically the same. You enter the front door and it's usually going to be wide open with the, the living room, kitchen all being one room. And then you got some bedrooms and bathrooms on the two ends. So I knew about how the mobile home was going to be laid out, but I also knew that because it's just one open room that our victim was going to be in the fire room and he was going to be in the, the worst IDLH atmosphere. So um, that that was just imperative that we knew that we needed to get in there and get him out. And so as we arrived on on the road, um, we went ahead and we were able to to see the structure. And I started relaying over the radio to all incoming units that uh, we did have um, light gray smoke showing. And so my thought process with that was, one of two things it was either still in the growth stage or it was already vent limited and that was just filtering out of the eaves and that's why this colored it to a lighter gray smoke and it was more laminar um and then whenever we got on scene and established command and went into rescue mode um right before we had actually made it um, I would say that the kitchen window actually self-vented. Um, the reason I know that is the the caller or the, the victim had his cell phone on him and he never disconnected it. So we ended up getting recording of the entire rescue, which was uh, uh, pretty, pretty amazing being able to have that and actually use that for training and stuff and, uh, and break down the, the call even further. And so... Um, with the time frame of the audio and and with the response we know that right before we got on scene that the the kitchen window self-fended because whenever i arrived got out and was about to enter the kitchen window was self-fended there was thick black high velocity smoke coming out of it which i knew that was the kitchen window because it was a little bit smaller of a window that you would see over a um over a sink 
So I knew, hey, that's where my fire is going to be. So as soon as I enter this door, my victim's got to be somewhere toward the right um, because that had to be in the living room. Um, and so I went straight to the door, which granted almost every fire we, we run, there's all kinds of neighbors and just pedestrians outside that's wanting to run up to you and, and distract you and everything. And there was about five or six people that as soon as I got out of the engine to start heading to the trailer, tried to meet me in the driveway. And I had to just go right through them because I didn't have time to, to, to speak with them. But anyway, so I got out, went straight to the door. My engineer um, got out and started getting his pack on so he could meet me inside. And I got to the door masked up, relayed on the radio, let everybody know that I was making entry. And as soon as I opened up that door, I knew right away it was vent limited because it was blacked out from the floor all the way to the ceiling. And as soon as I opened that door, it had that breath of air um, entraining the oxygen into that that structure. And uh, I got a little tunnel vision because I knew seconds seconds mattered. And I had to get in there. I knew the job at hand was going to be tough and we needed to be quick. And I let that affect um, my, my judgment a little bit, unfortunately. I knew that whenever I entered, I should have closed that door off to to prevent that oxygen from from coming in there and and relighting that fire, trying to keep it starved and vent limited. However, whenever I made entry, I went in and I, I left that door open. Um, but whenever I went in, I started hollering out for for the victim, and luckily he was still conscious. He started hollering back, and I told him to keep talking to me so I can make it to him. And uh, ended up making it to the victim. Um, and about that time, the door closed. Which, in in that brief moment, kind of scared me. Because even though I couldn't see my hand in front of my face, you can get, or, uh, you can tell where light is coming from. And so with that door being open, I knew about what direction I needed to go to get back out, to get this the victim back to the door to, to get out out of this house. And whenever that door shut, now I was a little disoriented. I didn't know where to go. Um, however, I thank God that the door did shut because that bought us those extra few seconds that we needed to get him out successfully. Um, and I knew that my, my engineer was right behind me. He wasn't going to leave me in there hanging. Um, so I knew that once I started that direction, he was going to be right there to, to guide me the rest of the way out. So I was confident in that. But I came up to the victim. I checked him for injuries real quick, and and he uh, just advised me that he had bad knees. And, and I told him, I was like, okay, well, I got to get him out. Um, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to be rough with you. And at this point, I still was unclear of the size of the victim, um, but that didn't really matter. I, I knew I had to get him out, and that's what we train for. That's what we work out for. That's what um, we're in shape for to, to, to give them the best chance possible. Um, so initially, I knew because we were in the IDLH, I didn't have time to try to 
get my webbing out and do a, a seven harness or, or a hasty harness or anything like that. I knew we had to, had to just do a dirty drag, just grab him and go. So I tried to per or get as much of a purchase up under his armpit as I could lock in and then grab everything I could with the other hand and, and just go with him. Um, uh, I just kind of did a row method where I was on my knees and just dragging him and pulling him as far as I could. And still at this point, I was unclear of that the single wide trailer was severe hoarder conditions. I didn't know that until after the fact and we cleared out all the smoke. Um, and like I said, I, I had that tunnel vision, so I wasn't 100% aware of my surroundings. I was just focused on trying to get him out, which was one of the points that um, I took away to learn from. But anyway, so I grabbed him and started dragging him out. And at that point, once I started moving him, I realized how big he was. Um, he ended up being about 350 pounds. Um, and he was about 15 to 20 feet inside that structure. And I'm assuming at the halfway point, I started having a little bit of doubt. I was like, man, this guy's big and am I going to be able to get him out? And, uh, which I, I took that brief doubt and, and threw it to the side and say, no, failure is not an option. We got to get him out. We've, we got to, um, make this happen because he's counting on us. And so I ended up having to change my, my drag technique a little bit. I ended up sitting him upright. Um, and just grabbing a hold of him around up under the shoulders and bear hugging him and then picking him up without just standing straight up because I'm trying to keep him low out of the out of the hot heated gases in the um, higher thermal air. Um, but I just went to the door as fast as possible. And at that time is whenever my engineer opened the door and was yelling at me, figuring out where I was. So I yelled at him, told him, hey, I need help, but just got me to the door. So once I made it to the door, I got hung up because of all the stuff that was in there. They got caught on my BA and I couldn't get unstuck. So I set him down at the door and handed my engineer an arm. He tried to drag and realized, hey, this guy ain't moving very well. So I got unstuck, grabbed his other arm, was able to make it out the uh, the doorway. And then we both of us were able to pull him free and clear of the doorway out of the structure onto the porch. And as soon as his feet crossed over that door plane, the whole structure lit off and fire shot across the room. <clears throat> so like I said, we just had seconds to, to get him out. And uh, with the times on that, from, um, from the time we arrived on scene to the time the victim was out of the structure was three minutes and 17 seconds. And from the time I entered the structure, to the time the victim was removed was two minutes and 15 seconds. So we tried to get him out as, as quickly as possible. Um, but like I said, as soon as we crossed that door plane, the, the trailer lit off. And so my engineer grabbed that door, isolated the door. Um, the fire was still so hot, it ended up burning through the top window of the door and like melted it out onto the the victim's leg which we had to we quickly got that off of him and uh advised everyone all arriving units coming in that 
the victim was removed on the front porch, but we were going to need help getting him out into the driveway. Um, at this point, my engineer and myself <clears throat> tried to grab his arms again and, and pull him down, um, down the ramp out into the driveway, but we were unable to budge him. We couldn't move him. And so there again, we had to change our drag technique again. And uh, this time, because we were outside of the ideal H, we still wasn't in the best space, but we're outside the ideal H, so we had a little bit more time to work with him. So we got our webbing out, wrapped it around him, gave us a little bit better leverage, and uh, we were able to get him out into the driveway and start patient care with high-flow oxygen and, and uh, making sure that he was getting cared for. Um, at this point, I stayed with the patient and the next four arriving units happened to be all chief officers. So we had two battalion chiefs, a uh, training chief and a training captain show up in their um, pickup vehicles. And uh, that's one thing I can very, I'm proud and, and I pride our department in whenever they need to, they get their gear on and they go to work just as much as we do. Um, so they showed up, got their gear on. Um, they started pulling lines, charging them, and they went in, started fighting that structure fire as I stayed with the patient. And then my engineer ended up going back in and joining them to finish extinguishing the fire while I loaded, I helped load the patient onto uh, the stretcher with EMS and getting loaded and transported. We had the patient in the ambulance and was about to uh, start transporting by the time the first or the next in engine got there. So that that just tells you how how far they had to come before and how long we had to wait before we had another engine um, get there. But uh, yeah, after after we got the the victim into the ambulance and him transported to the hospital, I tried to. I went to to command my battalion chief and asked if I could re rejoin my engineer inside the structure to finish the job. And he uh, he told me I had to stay off to the side and and just hang out, which I was pretty upset about because I wanted to go join my crew and I didn't want to just stand there. But I was I was trembling, I was shaking so bad. So I mean, it was the right call in the moment. I just didn't I didn't want to listen to it, but. But yeah, I mean that's that's roughly what happened, and uh, there was a lot of takeaways and and a lot of lessons learned. Nice. Well, it sounds like uh, you kind of hit all good explanation on everything, but you really did the best you could with what you had uh, on scene. Um, had had you dragged a line or gone after the fire instead, uh, doesn't sound like yeah, you the victim would have been out so quick. Um, and then, and then not messing around with the webbing and, and just doing a dirty drag, uh, you know, that, that was money, but with the victim that heavy, um, man, that, that had been difficult. Was he slippery at all? Or, or were you able to get a pretty good grip on him while you're inside? Oh yeah. He was definitely, definitely slippery. So, um, you know, that was one of the takeaways that we, we started looking at in, in our department was, you know, we train very hard and we're very good at packaging down firefighters, dragging them, getting them up and down stairwells, things like that. But we don't train as much on victim removal in general. 
because um, whenever you package a firefighter, I mean, you got multitudes of purchase points and grab points and things like that to to get them out and, and go. But whenever you got a victim, he was wearing sweatpants and a T-shirt. And so there was nothing there to grab onto. And so I, I just did the best I can. I ended up ripping his shirt all to pieces. He got some cuts from, uh, obviously, a lot of the things that were piled up in there. And um, and he, he ended up having first and second degree burns. I don't recall any third degree burns, but uh, he had severe smoke inhalation. And um, they ended up flying him to um, further south to a, a, a burn center. And he, he did end up passing away um, February 28th. So exactly one month after after the call, which that was, that was another rough time and, and kind of hard to go through, um, for myself, but I did get a, uh, a message from his nephew that I ended up graduating with just thanking us for saving him out of the, out of the structure fire because they were all able to go see him and have, um, three days, um, in peace that they that they could talk to him before he ended up passing away because they thought he was actually going to make a full recovery um they were talking about releasing him or putting in him into a, a, a rehab facility before they let him go home but then on that third day he ended up aspirating and then they obviously passed away but um well, yeah, you guys control the things that you could control, and um, you know that, that that's what it's about. Uh, what uh, before we wrap up? What are what are any other key takeaways that you had? So, um, definitely some of the key takeaways was I I wish I would have grabbed the tick. Um, that's definitely something that could have been very helpful. Um, with that being a hoarder house, it was very easy to get lost, get tangled up in, um, get disoriented. Um. And if he wouldn't have been conscious where he could have yelled at me, where I could have just went straight to him, I probably wouldn't have found him nowhere near as fast or or I would have got trapped in there myself because of the conditions. So I should have grabbed that tick. I should have been focused on that. Um, I should have grabbed just a, a hand light to leave at the front door. So I could have shut that front door and still knew where my exit was. And, uh, and then we talked about a little bit of uh, more of a water can class and things like that, a little bit quicker, um, just trying to cool conditions and trying to reset that fire as much as we can and just just some things uh, um, like that. It's tough to make um, perfect decisions when you have imperfect information and when, when you're so limited on your staff and, you know, somebody shows up with with four guys or, or six guys in two rigs, we're, we're able to do a lot more. Um, so, uh, that's a, that's a position I don't envy that you guys are in. Absolutely. And, uh, thankfully we, we are getting more and more people, um, on shift and, and at the station. So I'm very happy with that. Our chiefs are, are working very hard to, to further grow our department. Um, <clears throat> but one of the biggest issues with this was all just the, the emotional toll, man, um, the only way I can explain it is it was the most fear and adrenaline I've ever felt in my entire life. And it was the worst feeling I've ever felt. 
Um, and, and that's, that's one thing I try to take away, which I've been fortunate enough to, uh, go to other departments and also, um, talk about it throughout my entire department on every shift at every station. And, uh, and just don't let your pride get in the way. Um, if anybody out there, if they run uh, a bad call or if it gets to them, don't, don't just bottle that up. Definitely talk to somebody get through it because <clears throat> I walked around for probably a month or two with just a deep emptiness that I couldn't get rid of. It was the weirdest feeling and I didn't understand it. Um, but I, I found some, some great guys in my department that I trust that I could go to and talk to and stuff. And eventually um, one of them had some prior military experience and, and he really helped me break down the reason I was feeling the ways that I was feeling and, and helped me get past that. And, and so I really um, am grateful for that, but I just want to want everybody to know that like don't, don't bottle that stuff up. Don't let your pride get in the way because it, it doesn't make you weak, but you need to be able to get past that. So it doesn't affect your station life and your home life. Uh, it's a great point. You know, uh, it, it does sound like you put the work in ahead of time, knowing, you know, being educated in a fire service and being conditioned. Uh, I saw I saw a quote. Um, I don't know who it was from, but it said that the the fire gear keeps us or helps us in poor conditions, not uh, it doesn't replace the poor conditioning on the front end. And I thought that that's so important. Um, Absolutely. Because really, you know, you said all those things went through your head when the, when the call dropped, when the victim was trapped. Um, and we've all got those worst nightmare calls. And it's 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 at the point when the call comes in, it's too late to make a difference or it's too late to decide you want to train. It's what have you put in on the front end? And and I know the, the difficult calls that I've had, uh, as long as I'm prepared for them and I did everything I could, um, you know, we, we pull them out and let God sort them out um, that the outcome wasn't dependent on our, our lack of preparation. And uh, I know that helps me get through uh, the difficult calls a little bit faster. And it sounds like uh, that coupled with, with talking with some folks helped you get through that too. Absolutely. Training division definitely does a fantastic job of just building that search culture in our recruits and, and striving to put forth that, um, effort of, of having that knowledge and, and going and getting that knowledge and taking classes because, yeah, we, we need to be aggressive firefighters, but we don't need to be reckless. We need to be educated firefighters making good sound decisions in those split second um, times whenever seconds count and, and making those right calls. So I definitely want to praise the training division. That's awesome. Well, Justin, I appreciate you reaching out and sharing that story. I know there's a lot of people that can resonate with uh, the conditions that you arrived on and the lack of staffing that you had to go on. Um, so um, I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, really, our goal is just to to bring um, to bring these these rescues to everybody firsthand from the people that are involved and to 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 highlight the wins that we've got and also to bring the firefighter rescue survey to life. So I uh, appreciate you reaching out. So um, if anybody out there gets a grab, um, we want you to go to Firefighter Rescue Survey, fill out that survey, that information is for us and by us. That way we can train better. If you want to share your story uh, with us on the Grabs podcast, reach out to me, 
uh, Grant Schwalbe, uh, Nickeldean, or Justin McWilliams, and we'll try to get it recorded. Our goal is pretty simple. We want to have one of these come out about every two weeks. Uh, that way we keep rescues in the forefront of our mind. So until next time, thanks for listening.